Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist System. And I'm Amanda Comer, the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we are really honored to have Mr. Greg Duckett, our senior VP and chief legal officer for the Baptist System. Uh, Mr. Duckett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Uh, can you tell the the medical staff, the audience, just a, a little bit of your background and, and what you do for Baptist? Sure. Uh, my pleasure. I am the senior VP and chief legal officer for Baptist Healthcare Corporation. In that capacity, I coordinate and oversee all of the legal activities related to any of the entities associated uh, with Baptist, as well as I'm responsible uh, for claims risk management and our patient safety organization uh, as well as our corporate compliance office well once again just thank you so much for for coming on and, and talking to us uh, today we really want to talk about mtala um, you know it's it's a big topic in medicine and a lot of our medical staff um, even after practicing for many years still get a little bit confused about what is required under the law so do you mind uh, just telling us what is mtala well, EMTALA is known officially as the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. Uh, it's a federal law that requires anyone uh, who comes to an emergency department to be stabilized and treated regardless of their insurance stat status or their ability to pay. Uh, in some circles, it is better known as the anti-dumping law. It was a law that was put in place to ensure that individuals uh, would not have to rely on going to a public uh, facility, but they also had the right to go to a private facility if they were in need of emergency care. So when does MTELA apply? Would it apply to outpatient services? Uh, that is a excellent question uh, because the answer is it depends. As it relates to outpatient and I'll say clinic practices as well, under MTALA, if that urgent care facility and or clinic is located on the campus of the hospital, i.e. within 250 yards of the hospital, uh, MTALA could very well apply to that facility just as MTALA applies to an individual, let's say, for example, who has arrived at the hospital, but let's say is in the parking lot and had not physically made it inside uh, the hospital's emergency department, uh, MTALA would attach and the hospital would have an affirmative obligation uh, to adhere to the patient's needs, even though he or she was not physically inside the emergency department. But it, it, as long as that clinic is not, I guess, within 250 yards of the hospital, uh, under most circumstances, would it apply? Uh, no, it would not apply. Uh, that 250-yard rule uh, is an excellent benchmark for determining whether or not a facility does in fact uh, have to adhere to EMTALA. I would also add that 
with urgent care facilities, whether they are 250 yards uh, or within 250 yards of the hospital's main campus. Another factor that you have to look at is whether or not uh, they are licensed by the state that they are located in uh, as an emergency department. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let, let's back up just a little bit, and could you maybe tell us a little bit of the history of the law and what was really the purpose behind it? Well, when you look at MTALA, the law's in, initial intent was to ensure that patients had access to emergency care and again to prevent the practice of patient dumping whereby uninsured patients were transferred solely for financial reasons from a private institution to a public institution without consideration of whether or not that patient was in a stable condition that would allow for them to, to be transferred. So in 1986, when EMTALA was approved by the federal government, uh, it was strictly designed to prevent patient dumping uh, or which at that time we had a number of facilities that would in fact do what is known as a wallet biopsy mm -hmm. and make a determination as to whether or not the patient had the ability to pay for the services. And if not, they would try and transfer that patient to uh, what is refer commonly referred to as a safety net facility. How does MTELA define an emergency condition? Well, an emergency condition is a medical condition that manifests itself by acute symptoms and sufficient severity, including severe pain, such that absent the absence of immediate medical attention could reasonably be expected to result in placing the individual's health or in the case of an unborn, uh, the unborn child in serious jeopardy, serious impairment to bodily functions or serious dysfunction of bodily organs. For example, if you had a pregnant woman with an emergency condition, that individual must be treated until delivery is complete unless a transfer can be arranged uh, for that person to successfully deliver uh, the newborn. Let's talk about the emergency condition piece just a little bit more. So, you know, we end up getting a lot of patients in the emergency department uh, that their final diagnosis was would not be something that we would necessarily consider an emergency. It could be chronic back pain that they've had for a while or um, um, you know, knee pain or something like that they've been dealing with. Would like a triage nurse in the emergency department be able to stop that patient and tell them to go somewhere else because of that not being a quote unquote emergency? Well, interesting question because when you look at MTALA, you have the issue of triage, which is determining the severity of a condition, medical emergency condition if one exists for purposes of prioritizing when that individual would be seen for purposes of a medical screening. 
then you have the medical screening itself. So they are two separate and distinct functions that occur within the ED. During the triage process, it is not appropriate to tell an individual that he or she uh, should not be in the emergency department. That process should be conducted as part of the medical screening exam. And as part of the medical screening exam, that is when a true medical assessment is made to determine whether or not there is the presence of an emergency medical condition. And if during the medical screening exam, which again is separate from triage, uh, it is determined that the patient does in fact have an emergency medical condition, then the hospital has an affirmative obligation to further treat that patient to ensure that that emergency medical condition has been addressed and or stabilized to the capacity of the facility that has received that patient. No, it makes perfect, perfect sense. So they have to go through triage first and then they'll go see um, you know, the provider who would then do the medical screening exam and determine if it's an emergency condition and, and order treatment and stabilization for that. That is correct. So how does EMTALA define stabilization? So what does stabilization mean? Stabilization for purposes of EMTALA means that the organization has stabilized that patient from a medical perspective to the extent of its capabilities, meaning the patient has in fact whatever purpose the purpose was for why they came to the facility that illness has been addressed. If that facility does not have the capability and or capacity uh, to treat that patient, meaning if the patient has gone to a hospital that let's say, for example, does not have uh, neurological services available, and it is determined that the patient needs further neurologic uh, assistance, then the hospital would have to stabilize that patient before finding a facility that has the additional capabilities as well as capacity uh, to accept that patient and move that patient to that facility. But the transferring hospital cannot transfer that patient without adequately stabilizing the patient prior to transfer. And then as part of that transfer, they have to contact the facility to which they are transferring the patient to, as well as they would need to forward the medical records with the patient that is being transferred uh, to that facility as well. And that makes perfect sense and kind of gets into a, a topic I wanted to discuss. So, you know, a lot of what we think about with EMTALA, we think about the emergency department, we think about our emergency medicine colleagues. Um, but, 
you know, but some of the the specialists, some of the accepting physicians may not have as much of an understanding of Mtala as maybe they need to, uh, which is part of the reason why we're doing this episode. But what is the, I guess, the responsibility of that on-call physician, that specialist um, that's on-call for a facility, or and I guess in the same vein, what is the responsibility of the uh, the specialists or the accepting physicians at the other hospital that may receive a, a transferred patient? Uh, this, too, is another excellent question because it is often a point of uh, contention as well as confusion uh, in the emergency department uh, when it comes to EMTALA. Uh, what I share with a number of individuals when speaking on this subject is, first and foremost, as it relates to EMTALA, it is basically the on-call policy for physicians who are on the medical staff at any given hospital. The hospital is required to provide the on-call services in accordance with the resources that are available to it. Meaning, the hospital has to accept and treat patients, number one, if they have the capacity to treat the patient, meaning if they are not on diversion, then they have the capacity to treat. Also, if they have the capability to care for the patient, meaning they have the specialist on call to treat the patient who has uh, presented uh, to the ED. One of the areas of contention often centers around when the ED physician makes the phone call to the specialist to come in, the specialist, for whatever reason, takes the position that the ED physician should be able to take care of that patient and doesn't want to come in. Under EMTALA, it's important for physicians to realize that when CMS comes in to evaluate whether or not there is has been a violation of EMTALA, they are doing a retrospective review. And as such, they are going to be looking at what was the physician on-site determinations that caused him or her to make the call for the specialist to come in. I often recommend to specialists when they receive those phone calls, whether they have a concern that a patient is being transferred from one facility, bypassing another closer facility and coming to Baptist, and they know that there is a neurologist using that example at that other facility on call, I share with them, it's like the game of tag that we all used to play growing up. Once that hospital has called you asking for you to accept the transfer or that attending ED physician has called asking you to come in, the issue is tag, you're it. You need to accept the physician, the patient, come in, and see the patient because the recourse 
that we can talk about later is if in addition to the possibility of penalties and fines, but if you fail to come in, CMS can treat your failure to come in as a violation and it would open the door for monetary penalties to you as well as the possibility of you being excluded from participating in the Medicare program. Another issue that I often have to share with individuals is it's not just important for you to come in because of the penalties associated with your failure to come in. But if you don't come in, under CMS guidelines, a facility that receives a patient that they believe was in violation of the EMTALA laws, they have an affirmative obligation to report you to CMS within 72 hours of that inappropriate transfer or that refusal to accept a transfer. The significance of knowing this is twofold. Number one, what we try to do to avoid having to report anyone when we think we are the victim of an inappropriate transfer is we use the patient placement center to gather as much information as possible in terms of what other facilities were contacted and what reasons did they give for not accepting the patient. We then have risk management talk with the risk management teams at those facilities to number one, establish the working rapport between the organizations to avoid any contentious arrangements where we might end up inadvertently reporting a facility uh, to CMS. But more importantly, one of the things that I share with physicians, the ultimate decider of whether or not to accept a transfer or to transfer a patient is not the physician's decision, but it's the hospital's decision. Now, in reality, the hospital makes that decision in conjunction with working with the physician. So oftentimes we end up with situations where there is a dispute internally over whether or not a patient should be accepted and or transferred. And we fail to appropriately interact with administration so that a collaborative decision can be made to ensure that neither the physician nor the hospital runs the risk of violating the top. 
So you said a, a lot of interesting things there. One of the things early on that I thought was interesting was if, if the hospital has a capability, so for instance, they have a, I guess, a subspecialty service, then they have those positions on that subspecialty service, or they have to have a, a call schedule for, for that or call coverage for the ED for that. So you couldn't have a um, just a, a surgery service that would only do inpatient procedures and, and follow those patients on the wards, but not take patients from the ED or take patients from outside hospitals. Is that right? That is correct. Um, that is the classic definition of capability, excuse me, capacity. Capacity and capability. Capacity means that you're not on diversion and you are open to accepting patients. Capability means that you have the subspecialist available to treat the illness that the ED physicians uh, believe are needed to get that patient either to a point of stability if there's a need to transfer or to get that patient on the road to recovery if he or she becomes an inpatient at the facility. And our patient placement center really is an excellent resource to understand that capacity and capability throughout our, our health system. Uh, it definitely is, and I encourage uh, all of our physicians uh, and teammates to utilize the patient placement center. Uh, not only does it have the resources, uh, but sitting in my seat, uh, part of the resources that it has is that uh, its phone lines are recorded. And when CMS wants to raise issues about what was or was not done, the best evidence becomes the recordings that we have in the patient placement center. Uh, so in addition to the patient placement center being an excellent resource for the coordination of transfers uh, amongst and throughout our system, it is adequately trained in staff to secure and assist physicians and others uh, with transfers related to patients from within our system and outside of it. Uh, the challenge, if any, is uh, sometimes physicians will uh, attempt to overrule through direct-to-direct -direct conversations with the referring doctor from another facility, and that often occurs without the intervention of the chain of command of hospital administration, which I alluded to is crucial to the analysis of whether to accept and or transfer a patient. So let's go into that just a little bit more. So oftentimes when I hear about, I guess, uh, questions regarding transfers that may, or, or transfers that may be questionable as to whether the facility transferring the patient has the, I guess, the specialties needed to take care of that patient. It may be something like heart failure patient or a COPD patient where uh, the facility wants to transfer that patient to y'all because, or to us, because we have a cardiology or pulmonary service, or, or maybe the patient has a cardiologist that is uh, affiliated with our facility that um, they they want to transfer just because 
that cardiologist is there, even though the patient's condition at that hospital might not really need that specialty care at the moment. Most general practice, uh, general internists can, can treat those conditions. Um, how would you, if you were, I guess, like me, if I'm an internist and I was receiving that transfer and I had a question about the legitimacy of the transfer and whether or not it was needed, what would you advise me as the accepting physician to do in that situation? Well, first and foremost, uh, if it's coming from another facility, I would recommend that you contact and invoke the chain of command so that if at all possible, there could be discussions between administration at hospital A and administration at hospital B to help all understand that that is not an appropriate transfer and hopefully things will be averted. If that is not successful under EMTALA, since you in this example have been contacted, we would need to receive that patient uh, and treat that patient to the extent of our capabilities, because remember earlier, I said Mtala views the matter as like in the game of tag. Once we've been called, we are it. And there are things that we can do after the fact if we think that we have received an inappropriate transfer, as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of which is the kinder, gentler, let's have a conversation with that hospital to ensure that such transfer first do not happen uh, in the future. And then secondly, if they do in fact happen in the future, then we have the obligation and or opportunity uh, to report them to CMS. So you provided excellent examples of potential violations. Are there other scenarios that our medical staff should be aware of that could lead to a violation? Well, the biggest is the one I've alluded to, and that is uh, physicians not wanting to accept because they believe the patient should go to another hospital. That is what crosses my desk most of the times when I get recordings from PCC, Patient Placement Center. Uh, that is the essence of the majority of the complaints. Uh, secondly, uh, I can't emphasize enough that the entity operators are, are not invoking the chain of command when a physician refuses to accept a transfer. Uh, next, the obligation to accept or deny a patient is the responsibility of the hospital. Uh, and we should work with the physicians in reaching that conclusion. Uh, and then I, I just go back and I would like to underscore uh, the penalties that are associated for violation. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the CMS as well as the OIG, they have administrative enforcement powers regarding uh, EMTALA. Uh, 
there is a two-year statute of limitations for civil enforcement of any violations. Uh, it's important for us as practitioners and hospital operators to understand that it's not just uh, another physician or a hospital entity reporting us to CMS. The patient and the patient's family can file a complaint uh, to CMS. As it relates to the penalties, the worst penalty I alluded to is uh, your Medicare provider agreement can be canceled uh, for both the hospital and the physician. Hospitals can be fined up to $104,826,000 per violation for a hospital with 100 beds or fewer. Their fine could be $25,000 per violation. And for physicians, they can be fined $50,000 per violation. And this does, in fact, include the on-call physician if he or she fails to respond uh, when they have been contacted uh, to come in to treat a patient. And then lastly, uh, there is the prospect that the hospital could be sued in private court under a private cause of action uh, by anyone who feels as though they were injured as a result of a violation of EMTALA. No, that, that is that's excellent. Thank you for for spelling out those those penalties. Uh, I certainly wasn't aware of the the position penalties there. Um, one more question before we we kind of wrap this up. What if the if it's just the patient requesting a transfer to another facility? Uh, does the uh, the hospital that the patient requests are they obligated to accept them? Uh, that is an excellent uh, question to end on because one of the things that I omitted uh, during our discussion is that uh, while physicians can seek to make a transfer, if the patient is stable and if the patient has a choice, then patient choice should override any of the decisions. But a key to allowing the patient's choice to override any other medical decisions is that that patient is sufficiently stable to travel to the location that he or she wants to go. Obviously, in healthcare, we all know uh, the phrase uh, against medical advice we can advise the patient that he or she is not stable and needs to go to ABC facility. But if that patient decides that they don't want to go there, they're going to leave against medical advice, then there's nothing we can do but allow that patient to exercise that right. And if, if, the patient says to me, I want to be transferred to you know, X other hospital in your area. And, you know, I say to my patient, well, you know, we really have the capacity to treat you here, capability to treat you here. I, I don't recommend transfer. Um, 
What what would that scenario look like? Are you obligated to transfer that patient if they want to? And then is the other facility obligated to take it? Even if if you all have the, the capability internally, it's just the patient's choice to, to move facilities. Well, if the patient, again, is stable enough for the transfer or discharge, then we can go ahead and transfer or discharge them in a situation where the patient and the physician's opinion is not stable enough to be discharged or transferred, then it's my recommendation to the attending physician that they seek to provide medical treatment to minimize any further risk to the patient, seek to arrange for the receiving hospital to accept the, the transfer Attending physician needs to certify in writing uh, that the transfer outweighs the risk of the patient remaining at the facility. But then we should ensure the transfer is accomplished to the extent possible with qualified personnel. And as I said earlier, uh, provide copies of the medical record for the patient to take with him. But in a situation like this, at the end of the day, if the patient is just not willing to remain in the facility for his or her own good, there's not much we can do about it, but just document the actions that we have taken to try and discourage them from leaving. Uh, okay, that that was very helpful. Um, you know, I, I certainly learned a lot today, and I, I really appreciate you you coming on. Uh, any last words for the medical staff on the topic? Well, Mtala, it's a tricky issue. It's an important issue. Uh, it's one that every time I review it, I learn something new about it. So I generally understand the difficulties that a number of physicians uh, encounter and adhering to it. Also, I understand and appreciate from the physician's perspective, the fact that take, for example, one case that I dealt with was where a surgeon had performed a procedure on a patient at a hospital. That hospital on that given night did not have an on-call specialist to treat the patient because he was having some complications following the surgery. And as I shared with the physician, uh, I understand your concern because you are now being asked to take on the risk that another surgeon might have created. Uh, But unfortunately, Mtala doesn't view it that way. Mtala views it one way, and that is from the perspective of what does that patient need at that given moment, and it doesn't care who's in the chain of liability. That is unfortunate, but that is how the law is written and is being interpreted. So I just caution and remind people to be mindful of Mtala because it can become a stumbling block 
not only to the quality of care that's provided, but to the professional responsibility for both physicians and hospitals. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Duckett, and, and thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit. Thank you. Thank you, Dr.